Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hi there. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about career, craft and what matters to them. Today my guest is producer Michael Castle. He is a most accomplished showman. He is in the business of finding, developing and presenting quality stage product that serves a unique and ephemeral experience to an audience who is anticipating quality and a darn good time. As the producer of some of the best theatrical fare to grace Australian stages in recent years, he's been at the helm of the 10-year anniversary production of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical. He's guided a new Les Miserables and delivered Kinky Boots and Beautiful. He also brought A Wizard to Oz with the residency of Harry Potter at the Princess Theatre in Melbourne. Castle is set to thrill and delight audiences once again with the much-anticipated Australian premiere of the juggernaut entertainment Hamilton, which opens next week in Sydney. I, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I want to be in the room where it happens. I meet Michael at the offices of the Michael Castle Group. The entrance foyer is grand and ushers the visitor into a warm theatrical space. It is framed in a palette of rich red with black trim. Trophies of theatrical excellence and showbiz books adorn the tables. And featured large are icons from his signature productions, Lola's red leather knee-high boots, support an impressive headdress that completes the actor playing the monarch Mufasa. Close by are a pair of parrot-handled umbrellas, favoured by the nanny who worked at 17 Cherry Tree Lane. A copy of Variety is available to inform and entertain in this opulent waiting room, a space that heralds the arrival of a creative visionary who is passionate about the business of show. Stages spoke to Michael Castle in January. He was focused on reopening Harry Potter and the Cursed Child in Melbourne after its COVID hiatus and was close to the commencement of rehearsal for the theatrical phenomenon Hamilton. For this comprehensive conversation, Michael gave me access to the room where it happens. His boundless energy propels him through our dialogue, and it feels finished before it has begun. He's a nice guy, and it was super to hear his story and a considered reflection of navigating his business through the current pandemic. Plus one or two thoughts for the future. And I was chuffed to learn that he's a big fan of stages. 
Here's my chat with live event producer and podcast connoisseur, Michael Castle. This office is very showbiz. Oh, yeah. I love it. You come down that, that sort of cold corridor and then you open it. Yeah. Well, we took over. We moved here back in 2017. Right. Um, and as I said, we, before we, when I first started back in uh, 2013, you know, I needed an office, but you know, couldn't afford anything. Um, and so I went to Stephen Found and said, look, do you have a room? And we ended up taking over two storage rooms, knocking out the wall. And that was our office for the first four years. And had no natural light, nothing. It was just, you know, great space to work and it was fine. Anyway, you know, the growing in terms of people and, and production. So I started looking. And when I came across this, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is great. The natural light, you know, the location and stuff. Anyway, it was just a shell. So we went and did all of the design and set up. But, yeah, we love it here. You know, because it feels like, you know, you work in theatre, you want it to feel a bit theatrical. And, and the cross is sort of becoming a theatre district with the haze down oh, the certainly road. Is. Well, that's what we love Nimrod. about um, yeah, you're sort of in the epicentre of all of this sort of entertainment and cultural activity. And, yeah, it's great being able to wander down the street to a Hayes production. And, and you know, even with agencies and, and a lot of, you know, artists are, you know, certainly living in this area. So it's you feel connected to the community, I think. It's, uh, uh, the Minerva, hopefully. The yeah. Metro, uh, hopefully that takes off. Have you been to the Minerva? No, I've, I've, no, the building, but I've never been inside. We went and had a look at it. Uh, <laughs> actually, when we were looking at offices... It was up for lease, and I thought, oh, well, let's just go have a look, Great, you know, get the ties. It is the most beautiful building. Uh, I would love to see that return to a theatre. Right. It's, I mean, it's an, it will be an intimate space, but what a great location and just, you know, what a lot of history. Because history is a cinema, but, and I know some stage shows have been there, but can you see theatre working in that space? Yeah, I do. I, you wouldn't go and port Hamilton in there. It's not going no. to have the capacity. But it would be a great place for sort of, you know, mid-scale or small musicals. Certainly a great place for plays. And, yeah, I think you could program it really well. And it would be a nice complement to certainly the theatres that we've got in the city between, you know, the big houses like the Lyric and the Capitol, smaller than the Ross Packer. So I, ho- I hope that comes through. Do you know about the infamous production of Applause that was there? I don't. You don't know it for No. Um... Shonky and Shonky producers, I think, but they brought Eve Arden out right, to yeah. play the Lauren Bacall role, or the you know the the Bette Davis role from All About Eve, and Judy Kennelly played the the Eve yeah. character. Great, great cast. Frosty was selling programs around the house, I think. <laughs> and um, anyway, the uh, the producers just flew, uh, uh, did a did a runner. Um, Were they Australian producers? No, um, yeah, I think so. Oh well, yeah. yeah. And. Um, uh, anyway, Eve Arden paid the company out of her own pocket. Oh, wow. Sort of the wages wow. of nursing. Yeah. Dodgy. Yes. How about that? <laughs> um, sidebar again. Yeah. Um, the lyric. Yeah. I did um, Frosty's An Ideal Husband, which was the first, oh, yeah. first play in there. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. But so we, we rehearsed in the, what was the rehearsal room there? Yeah. Um, yeah, from that space. It was oh, great. Wow. Yeah. And Pyramont was nothing then. Yeah. You had to walk. A couple of k's to go and yeah yeah no i mean look we were just saying this morning we just started we've got our principal uh rehearsal starting today over at abc for hamilton 
and all of the team were like, oh, we're just, like, this is the best. You know, the theatre's in such a good location. We're able to go get lunch. And, you know, there's the nice park opposite. I mean, that whole area has changed. Even, you know, in the time that we were there, you know, we moved in in 2013 into the Lyric and, you know, until today, that area just continues to change. And just, you know, the hive of activity and people, and obviously with those commercial offices that, you know, continue to expand along the waterfront and, and even that sort of block, that precinct around the star, now, you know, it's much more vibey than you know, it was eight years ago. Is it difficult to find rehearsal spaces for a show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. It's sort of, it's... I mean, we talked to it, it's hard enough finding a theatre. It's hard enough finding a theatre, but then to, you know, that rehearsal space is the next level of complexity. It is, you know, there's just not enough space to, you know, with the size of rooms that you need and you know support offices that is also in close proximity to the city you know I think that's it when you know we were talking about it this morning our head of production Todd Lacey uh, worked on the original Lion King with us here and when we rehearsed that show uh, back in 2003 we rehearsed out at Homebush because of the space we needed but you know that meant a 45 minute commute for everybody back and forth you know Mm. so that we didn't have the uh, uh, the the uh, luxury of you know these uh, toroids going through. So you know you need you, you need the space to be able to get these shows up and running. We're fortunate to have been able to secure the ABC rehearsal studios. So you know that's in close proximity. We can you know quickly duck to the lyric once the show starts loading in. It's easy for us from here. All of the you know talents who have come from you know New York and, and overseas who are staying in apartments. You know they can walk or ride their bikes over. Um, so yes makes life a lot easier let's build a theatre and then we'll get a rehearsal room <laughs> well Michael Castle it's lovely to have the opportunity to, to sit down with you at Lancaster and, and, and welcome to the stage as alumni it's really exciting to be with you thank you um, let's acknowledge that we're recording this in January so it's approximately a month before you reopen Harry Potter in Melbourne and of course uh, probably a couple of months before the premiere of Hamilton That's right. um, so I doubly appreciate your time because I'm sure your schedule is about to get very busy I know, it's very exciting. No, I'm very excited to sit with you, but I'm very excited that we've just started rehearsals last week for Potter, so that's a great way to start the year and and welcome in 2021. And, you know, to have rehearsals upon us for Hamilton, which starts rehearsals next Monday, ahead of the opening in March, uh, you know, it feels good. Good. Well, let's talk about those two shows a little bit later in the conversation. Let's learn about you now. Um, You've served a long apprenticeship in various production houses. MCG, mm-hmm. Michael Castle Group. When did that start? Was it two, 2013? Yeah, you know, so the or? official day that uh, we sort of went out on our own was the 17th of December 2012. But in January of 2013 was when we sort of properly hung out the shingle and and uh, started work on our first show, which was Les Miserables. Obviously, it was something that you've always wanted to do since you were knee-high, mm-hmm. the proverbial grasshopper. Um, anxiety concern double thinking is this the right thing to do does that i suppose it crosses anyone's mind going into any business yeah i think certainly for that um the inception of of mcg and our first production of lame is was you know there's a bit of doubt there certainly because i you know had the good fortune of working for other people and other distinguished producers before that you're one of many who are making the decisions uh, you are supported financially and it's, you know, it's not your name on it. Yeah. And so when, you know, we set up for Les Mis and it was a 
we had essentially 18 months pre-production it was a long time to be able to think I hope I get this right and I don't muck it up uh, but you know I was really pleased with how Les Mis opened obviously Cameron was happy which was a relief <laughs> didn't want to muck that up and you know since then sort of certainly you know confidence grows and you just continue to take the next step and and trust your instinct and, and hope it all goes well that's is, what you can do is Les Mis a guaranteed Starter. I mean, it was probably about the fourth production we'd seen in Australia. Yeah, the show hadn't toured here for 17 years. Um, it was the third production uh, that had been in Australia. Uh, look, I think very fortunate to have such a tremendous title in Les Mis. I mean, to, to be offered to produce that here, you know you, you're starting from a, a great foundation. Um, certainly a lot of love, a lot of interest in the title. We know the show is exceptional. Uh, which I think for me placed <laughs> more doubts because I thought, gee, I don't want to be that one producer in the world that stuffs up uh, Amy's. Like, yeah. that would not go well. Um, and thankfully it didn't. So optimism and flexibility are probably essential in, in your business of producing live theatre. Um, over the past year, though, that's obviously been very tested. Uh, were you able to maintain your optimism that that things would be all right towards the end of the year and into 2021 or? Yeah, look, I think you, you had to. I sort of galvanised myself sort of early on to go, okay, we could sort of curl up in the corner in the fetal position and say it's all over and it's all crumbling down or we can, you know, step out and say, you know, we're going to get this back on track uh, and, you know, we're going to come back stronger than ever. And so, you know, I'm naturally an optimist um, I think you have to be and you know we took that path and you know started early on I said to our team you know when our shows first closed uh, beginning of last year and I said to our team you know we have to do everything we can to support the industry I think first and foremost because we need an industry to come back to so how do we do that and you know I felt that the advocacy piece of it was really important you know the relationships with government educating all of those decision makers on what impact this pandemic was having on the theatre business in particular you know the the live entertainment business so I felt that was where we could exert most of our focus and energies uh, obviously supporting our people and making sure everybody was well supported we had a company of Lion King that had gone back to you know 19 different countries uh, having meant to have opened in Wuhan back in February so that was sort of our first experience of closing down a show and then obviously with Potter which closed down in March we wanted to make sure that the cast and crew were well taken care of and more so that we were in a position to be able to reopen uh, and so, you know, we spent a lot of our time just sort of advocating and making phone calls and hassling and, you know, engaging with others, others in the industry. And that was good because it kept us busy. It kept us focused, but it kept us focused on the future. Yeah. And I think that's what certainly kept me going to say, look, there's going to be a time when we're going to be able to welcome people back through their doors. And, you know, there were bumps in the road, you know, we never expected, certainly back in July when, you know, Melbourne went into lockdown again, mm. that that was in our future because, you know, from May through to the early parts of June, you know, I'd been focusing on let's get the show up in September and it felt like that was going to be realistic. Certainly, you know, the, the indications from government were good and from health and then, you know, lo and behold, you know, big surprise. But... 
you know, we rather rather than let that get us down and sort of just give up, I just was more determined to go, okay, how do we, you know, let's do it again and let's put another marker in the sand. And I think that kind of kept us all going, plus the fact that we were in pre-production on Hamilton. And so, whereas the other shows we'd said, you know, goodbye to, albeit for a, for a brief period of time, Hamilton was still ramping up. And I think that sort of level of um, energy and, and that optimism of looking to 21 and saying we're going to be going into rehearsals in January certainly, you know, allowed a lot of us to, to keep energised and keep focused and, and be excited about the future. Right. So were you spending time in Wuhan in February? No, I, we were two weeks out from having the first of our company arrive in Wuhan when we cancelled. So we were meant to be opening there on the 21st of February and on the 23rd of January we had a telephone conversation with our partners in Wuhan and you know they quite rightly recommended that we postpone the engagement which you know, absolutely we were in support of. But it was an interesting time because we had just opened uh, The Lion King in Hong Kong uh, back in December, December 18. We had, the Australian team had returned. We were you know, taking that Christmas New Year period off and Luca Azaris, who's our head of marketing, sent me an email, I think around the 28th of December. And it was a link to a BBC article that said, you know, mystery virus in Wuhan. I'm like, well, you know, this can't be good. You know, this yeah. is interesting. And just how quickly, you know, things evolve there. And obviously, you know, conversations from the new year with our partners as we were trying to determine what's the right thing and you were trying to understand what the impact of this was. Uh, you know, obviously it led us to the right decision, but thankfully we didn't have anybody on the ground in Wuhan. We did have our set in uh, in China. So, you know, that was the only thing that made its way there. And obviously then we, you know, spent a couple of months to send it back to Australia when we, uh, when we pulled the pin. Um, and you caught COVID, didn't you, early on? Yes, I did. Um, what was that experience like? Was Look, it was, again, not something that I had on my list in 2020, no. but we were just ticking it all off. <laughs> uh, look, it was... Uh, I fared better than a lot of people who've had COVID, yeah. Um, yeah. thankfully. I was the 103rd person to get it in the state, so it was quite early on. Weird. Um, and I say that only because when I got it, there was not... You know, I didn't know anybody else who had it. Um, we, you know, there were articles coming out every day saying this is what happens and this is what happens. So it's all a bit terrifying. Yeah, of course. Um, I went and got tested because I had been in contact with somebody who had it, which is what prompted me to, you know, go to the hospital and, and, and do all of that, as did a few of my colleagues who had um, who'd been involved as well. And at the time, I didn't think I would, would have it. I had woken up the day before with a cough, but it was not a bad cough. Um, and got the test twenty four uh, the test results twenty four hours later and told I had it and literally that was the Friday when we were making plans to close down Harry Potter so it was it was sort of the most minor thing to have happened that day and it wasn't until late that night that you know all of the calls had stopped about eleven o'clock that evening with our team and with our London colleagues that I had a chance to focus on going oh goodness okay I've got it what does that mean and there was a moment where I said to my wife oh oh goodness you know this and I was worried about it um, and it was only a couple of days later that the symptoms you know I started to experience the symptoms the worst thing that happened to me was that I was um, I was tired a lot I slept a lot I had 
you know, a lot of the symptoms that have been reported with COVID. Thankfully, nothing to warrant going into hospital, uh, but it knocked me out for about 19 days. I was quarantined in my bedroom. Thankfully, my family and, and a whole lot of other people that I'd interacted with that week who did have to go and isolate, quite rightly, uh, didn't catch it. So I was happy about that. Um, and look, I'm just happy that, you know, it could have been a lot worse and it, and it wasn't. Yeah, it's certainly been uh, Russian roulette for a lot of people, hasn't it? Yeah. Sort of I mean, there's, you know, that's, I think that's, that's the scary thing about it. You know, there's sort of no consistency as to how people react. And, you know, the symptoms can be very mild or, you know, extremely you know, life-threatening. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was the first live performance that you saw that, that seduced you into this... Um, this career of putting on a show. Well, I'd seen I'd seen a couple of live performances, not theatre productions, but you know, in our family, we were huge fans of Young Talent Time. Oh. <laughs> and so I want to say we'd been to several Young Talent Time concerts, you know, live experiences with my uh, brothers and my sister. But I think my first proper theatrical experience would have been I want to say I think it was uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which no, that's a lie, actually, because that would have been in 93. So it would have been Jesus Christ Superstar, which I saw in 92. Um, was that the arena? That was the arena production? tour. Right. Um, and that was, that was the moment. So that was an arena production. That was production. Harry M, wasn't it? That was Harry yeah. M. And, and for me, that was the light bulb moment of, oh, there's a role of a producer. You know, that was, that's cemented my career path. It was um, so definitive. The first professional theatre production, and we'd seen a lot of amateur theatre, Growing up in Kiama, and there was a, you know, a company there called the Ruth Theatre Group, a local theatre company. Um, so we'd seen a lot of that, and I'd been, you know, part of their drama classes, and we used to do shows quite regularly. Uh, but the first then theatre production I saw was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which we saw in 1993, and uh, my parents had taken me to that because the year prior in '92 we'd staged Joseph at our school. And I'd fallen in love with Joseph, so it was a great opportunity to go and see that with, you know, David Dixon and Tina Arena and the whole company. Who did you play in Joseph? Pharaoh. Oh. So, you know, a bit of a bit of a rock and roll. We got, you know, the finale, got the encore finale. Very good. Yeah. Um, I played Jacob. Oh, Jacob. the first of many patriarchs <laughs> I had played all, all through my career. Who was your favourite young talent team? Oh, I don't know. I want to say maybe it was probably, I think I liked Danny Minogue, I liked Vanessa, um, Natalie, you know, all of them, Vince. Extraordinary the number of musical theatre performers that have come out of that, yeah. uh, that alumni and Debbie Byrne and yes. Tina Arena, yeah. uh, Philip Gould. Yes, of yeah. course. No, I mean, look, it was such a, I think, you know, sort of the Debbie Byrne and Philip Gould was a little bit prior to our time tuning in to Young Talent Time. But it was, you know, it was it was the Saturday night tradition. Yeah. No, we. I think it was the only way Mum and Dad got us out of the pool and eating dinner before we could sit down and watch it. And you know, we were mesmerised by it. And then, you know, for me, I think you know it's interesting looking back. But you know, I was then recreating those Young Talent Time performances for the family, and then you know, convincing Dad to build a stage on the spare block of land next door. You know, dressing my brothers and my sister up, or my aunties and my uncle, and putting on. You know, that was for me. You know, and yes, I used to perform in it, but actually, I think I was much more suited to the producer role than the performing role. Thank goodness. 
I was always disappointed that the reboot of Young Time didn't take off. So was I. I was very excited. As I was excited for my daughter too, because I thought, oh, okay, we'll be able to go through this again. And I think what well, we got one one series, but yes, I wish that had have lasted. So you grew up in Minamura? Yes. Uh, down the south coast near near Kayama and the, the famous blowhole. Mm-hmm. Always love going to that. Well, last time I we went down there, the blowhole wasn't blowing. Really? No, no, it's very boring. Well, you got ripped off. Yeah, I know. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. Um, so um, what type of student were you or, or, or child? Were you well, a dreamer? Class clown? No, I think it was a bit of a dreamer, bit of a dreamer, bit of a doer. Uh, certainly, I think in you know primary school, you know we had a very um, enthusiastic sort of you know um, teaching staff, and a lot of performance. So I love you know that was I loved that. I was a good student, a school captain in year six, all of that stuff. I think by the time the transition to high school for me was I was a good student, but as time went on, I was less interested in studying. I just wanted to work. You know, I wanted to get out and work and be in the theatre. Were, so, were there any uni aspirations or was it all, no, I just, I'm going to finish no, I, I, join I, the circus? If I really wanted to join the circus. Yeah. You know, if, you know, I was writing uh, letters, you know, the first letter I wrote to Harry Miller was, I was in year six at primary school. I said, and this was after seeing Superstar. And I said, dear Harry, I want to be a producer. Will you give me a job? And Harry wrote back and said, dear Michael, I suggest you go to high school first and then go and pursue your studies. I was like, damn. So 12 and years old, you wrote the letter. Yeah, absolutely. I had this, um, I wrote to everybody. You know, I used to have this um, wall in my bedroom and, you know, we called it the rejection wall because I used to write to people asking me for a job and they'd write back usually very politely and say, thank you, Michael, for your interests, but we're not hiring at the moment or we suggest you pursue your studies. But I don't know what I thought, but literally if somebody had have said, yes, you're hired, I... I Mum and Dad, I'm sure, never would have agreed. But I just wanted to work. I didn't want to go to school. Um, I'm glad I did. And obviously, in hindsight, you realise how important that is. Have you got all those letters? Yeah, I do. Right. Yeah, I do. I've got yeah, I've got letters from Ray Martin saying, thank you, Michael, we don't need a co-host on the <laughs> midday show, but when you do Year 10, why don't you you know come and do work experience? Jan Russ, who is the casting director of Neighbours, I've got her letters. I mean... Uh, I think Forrest Redlick, who was the producer of um, East Street at the time, I thought, oh, I'll go produce East Street. There's a producer role. No, no can do. But yeah, you know, it was, um, for me, it was, I, I, I still love writing letters to people. I love meeting new people that you haven't met and learning. But for me, I think also part of the thrill is getting the response. You know, that's, I love that too. Um, and so, you know, I sort of took that up a notch when I started, you know, producing my you know, um, shows, events down in Kayama, because this time I was you know, actually doing a deal. You know, I was getting sponsorship from the local newspaper or from you know, Wind Television or whoever it was, or writing to Jesse Spencer to come and perform at the show. Uh, you know, you're actually in a transaction. So that was exciting because it was no longer a reject. There were plenty of rejection letters saying, no, we can't sponsor or no, we can't appear. But you were actually, you know, one in a hundred, there was a yes, and that was exciting. Oh, that's great. Yes, the art of letter writing is something which has fallen by the wayside uh, because of technology, I suppose, and emails and all that sort of thing. But there's nothing better than, than receiving a, a personal correspondence. No, never. I yeah. Look, I write letters all the time, 
and I love receiving letters and I you know it's meaningful Mm. Uh, and I think it also in the art of so much electronic communication I think a letter you know always you know stands at the top Mm. you know gets the attention and and is meaningful you know you know that somebody has actually taken some thought to to craft Mm. the letter and then you know it's it's an effort it's meaningful well, hopefully you'll receive about 60 letters. Let's go. This, uh, <laughs> this episode is released. Did you learn an instrument at school? I did. Yeah. Uh, I learned piano. I started playing the piano uh, from about the age of seven. I uh, had piano lessons every week and used to do my exams. And I you know, continued with that right through to year 12 at high school. Did music as an elective at high school and as part of, as part of my HSE. Um, and, you know, still play today, but more sort of just for for joy and entertainment and sing along with the kids yeah cast recordings were you an avid collector i would say i was an avid collector i mean i used to i had a lot of um a lot of cast recordings i suppose uh on cd when you know i got a cd player i think i was probably 13 or 14 so that was exciting i think one of the first cast recordings i got was west side story i had superstar but i had borrowed i didn't uh, when Superstar, we went and saw that in 92. I didn't have a CD, our family didn't have a CD player. And so it was my auntie and uncle who brought the CD. And so I used to go and listen to it at their house. And I think they had dubbed it down onto a cassette tape so it could have. Uh, and then when I got a CD player, I begged them to borrow the CD of the cast recording. So that was probably the second that I used to um, listen to. And thank goodness that was recorded. I mean, Farnham as Jesus oh. Christ is just extraordinary isn't it honestly i listened to that cast recording over and over again you know it's still on a high rotation i just love you know those performances are just phenomenal but also those those orchestrations you know what david hirschfelder did in kind of you know reinterpreting that score you know i wish you could go and sit in the stadium today and just turn that up and listen to it because i'd love to have that wash over me again but it's great to have the cd so your first forays into producing are in the local community in Kayama. You're, you're doing Carol's Black Candlelight, is it? Or yeah, well, what, look, what are you producing? Well, I thought, you know, so I'd been doing amateur theatre and, you know, went through the junior theatre program and then the youth theatre program with the Rue Theatre. And I'd gone from performing in their shows, uh, I think quite poorly, to music directing their show. So I uh, was musical director of a number of their youth theatre productions. And I think the last production that I'd MD'd was um, Our Day Out, which we had uh, performed. And I you know, seconded a couple of my um, friends from high school to play in the band. But I wanted to be a producer and I was getting all of these rejection letters from, you know, real producers saying, no, we won't give you a job. And, you know, there wasn't really a role in the Rue Theatre to produce a show, um, certainly not that I had identified. So I thought, OK, I'm going to do my own thing. So I thought, oh, I wanted to do a Carols by Candlelight concert. And Guaranteed think, winner. Well, that's what I thought. Yeah. I mean, look, I think part of it was I'd, I'd come up with this idea in January. So obviously we'd just been through Christmas. You know, I was watching Carols in the Domain and, you know, my favourite, Carols in Melbourne. And I thought, well, this is a guaranteed winner because people love Christmas. I love Christmas. You've got a repertoire, you know, you, hopefully a ready-made audience. And I thought, you know, more so practically, I've got almost 12 months to work out what I'm doing and pull it together. So I told my parents, and I'm like, okay, off you go. Uh, so I wrote to the Lord Mayor of Kayama at the time and a lady called Joyce Wheatley and said, you know, 
Dear Lord Mayor, I'd like to produce a carol's by candlelight. Will you give me access to the quarry, leisure centre and sporting fields? Now, these were fields where you typically play soccer. Um, and what's amazing about them is that they're surrounded by a quarry cliff face. So it's an old quarry. And I just love the idea of the of lighting it up. I thought, you know, what a great backdrop, you know, very theatrical. Um, and I decided, you know, for something for, I wanted this not just be a Carols by Candlelight concert, I wanted it to be a, you know, spectacular. Yeah. So I thought, well, it deserved a spectacular name. So I called it the Carols by, Kayama Carols by Candlelight Christmas Spectacular. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, we need Santa to arrive in a special way. So I thought I, I want a helicopter to drop Santa in. <laughs> and so this was my pitch. And, you know, I think the council just thought, yes, this is interesting. And here's a young teenager who will, you know, keep them busy. So yes, we'll say, have the car- have the fields. Because you're 15, aren't you? Yeah, I was, well, I turned 15 that year. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think I wrote my first letter when I was 14, you know, to start pulling this together. And, you know, what was interesting was, and I used to enjoy it, I think it was part of the theatrical experience of it all you know so I'd send these letters and you know win television will you sponsor the carols and you know I never say how old I was or you know anything you know I'm producing this carols and I've got a 40 piece orchestra and we're going to have guest stars and this and that and so people would write back here they're going yes we'd sponsor it or yes let's have a meeting and so then I'd turn up you know my mum or my dad or whoever I could corral would drive me to the meeting and I'd turn up either in my school uniform or I'd you know if it was a really important meeting I'd change and I think these people just go oh my goodness like a 15 year old has just walked through the door what have we gotten ourselves into but I think also you know that was in my favour a lot of people thought okay we're just going to rally behind this guy and you know help him and let's see if he succeeds and give him a give him a bit of a break and you know for me it worked because I got all of this great support I think we produced the first carols on a budget of five thousand dollars but you know we had 40 piece orchestra we had a mass choir of 100 people had dancers we had soloists we had um, special guest stars. We had sat, you know, I convinced, I ended up getting in contact with Sydney Helicopter Service and they came down from the, um, I think they flew down from Bankstown Airport to pick up Santa and drop him in. We had, you know, a whole, uh, the Rural Fire Service came and did this big fire um, truck uh, display so that the helicopter could land safely. And, you know, I hoped that we'd have 300 people turn up. I thought, you know, I don't care. It could be my family. You know, we're putting on a concert. I don't care who comes. But we ended up having, I think, you know, two or 3,000 people that first year. And so, you know, that I was hooked. I was like, this is great. We're putting on a show. You know, we rehearsed forever. Uh, and, you know, it's finally, you, you know, got to say, right. I produced a show. Yeah. This is great. So it all came off. Everything you envisioned. Yeah worked yeah it did oh look i think not without drama and concern and i think i probably gave my certainly my mother a nervous breakdown i think she was most concerned about the weather and quite rightly because that first year it you know rained but you know the show must go on and so we did so were your parents happy about a career in the arts yeah that's important yeah absolutely look i think mum and dad were if this is what you want to do off you go I think, you know, partly it was, well, Michael's busy, so at least he's not, you know, roaming the neighbourhood. We know where he is. And I think they just knew how passionate I was about it. You know, this was, 
I was, you know, I think finally I wasn't irritating the family because every family event was a dress up, a concert, to this or that, you know, when before my sister could actually grace the stage of our home productions, I was putting my brothers in dresses because, you know, we needed some, you know, female performers. So I think they all just thought, great, go harass somebody else and at least we can just get on with life. So... I think maybe that might have been part of the motivation. But, you know, they're supportive. But I think also, as I started doing this, I think mum and dad were like, oh, goodness, you know, they obviously don't want you to fail and, you know, want you to be protected. And, you know, also, which I don't think I thankfully uh, recognise the huge risk, but, you know, they were worried about how are you going to pay for all of this? Uh, and, you know, don't overcommit. But, you know, thankfully I was... Um, that worked out and I was able to raise sponsorship and, and people were generous. Um, and so it was a really great start and a really good experience. So you must have written to Harry and Miller again, <laughs> saying, look what I've done. Well, no, it, yeah, it's kind of. So Harry wrote to me and, um, and, you know, ended up on the rejection wall. But in the second year of the carols, uh, I had written to Alan Jones, who obviously it was on 2UE at the time. What, to possibly host the carols? Well, I thought he should be a good... Ho- well, I... Initially, I thought he should promote it because, you know, we were trying to get people along. Uh, So I wrote to him and, you know, he did a few plugs and I don't think he quite realised when he first responded that, you know, this is some upstart from Kayama, you know, going to high school writing to me. And so we did an on-air interview and I think I joked, you know, with him, you should come and host it. And so I ended up writing to him and said, look, I'd really love you to host it. And Alan had a property at the time down in Jamboree. So I also thought, you know, we're dealing, you know, appealing to his uh, community spirits. You know, one of us, Alan. You won't have to pay for accommodation. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. You can drive yourself there. So he agreed. And, you know, I mean, Alan uh, tells this story a lot. But, you know, he arrived and I had the Rotary Club who were our security meet him at the gate and escort him backstage. And I had a site shed that I'd um, hired from Go Hire, which was his dressing room. And I, you know, Alan was like, Blimey, Michael, have you put all of this together? I was like, yes, Mr. Jones. He's like, well, you know, do you want to be a producer? I was like, yes, Mr. Jones. He said, you really should meet my manager, Harry M. Miller. He's, you know, one of Australia's, you know, most distinguished producers. I said, well, yes, Mr. Miller. I've written to Harry several years ago. And Harry said, no. He said, well, look, Michael, I suggest you write to Harry again and tell him that I've, you know, put you in touch and that you've just produced his carols concert. So I did that. I think I may have, you know, stretched the truth and said, look, Mr. Miller, Alan said you must meet with me. But uh, so uh, Harry's office got in touch and said, well, come and meet with Harry. And I went and met with Harry and I think he just thought it was all a bit entertaining. Uh, But he said, look, if you want to be a producer, why don't you come and do work experience here? So that was from the end of year 10, beginning of year 11, I used to go up to Harry's office and do work experience. And every school holidays, I'd get on the uh, the train at Minamara and uh, catch it up to King's Cross and walk down to Cathedral Street in Willamaloo. And I just thought it was the best. You know, finally I had an office to go to and, you know, Harry would let me sit in on his, you know, telephone conversations as his negotiating deals. And you know, I just loved it. I loved being there. So, um, you know, I used to do that for every holiday's uh, you know, from year 10 through to year 12 or year 11 through to year 12. And I did a few, bit, a few other sort of work experience placements over that time. I wrote to Frosty when he was uh, producing Grease, the Arena Spectacular, 
and uh, and Frosty wrote back and said, look, you know, let's meet. So my dad drove me up to his offices, I think in Glebe at the time, and I met with Frosty, and I was so excited to meet with him. And he's kindly said, well, look, why don't you come and do some work experience on Greece when we're in rehearsals up at Newcastle? Well, actually, before that, uh, at ABC Studios. Um, and then uh, when the show transferred and did its technical rehearsals up at Newcastle. So I did that. That was fun. And it was the first time I was involved in, you know, I think I was peeling the post-it notes, doing the opening night allocations with the team then. And, you know, just... just learning and observing and seeing what everybody did yeah because you know you'd done you know i was doing my own shows but i was making that up that was not based on anything other than how do we try and get a carols by candlelight or whatever we were doing on stage and you had the amateur theater experience but here you had you know it was proper and you know so you learning what does a stage manager actually do and company management and all of the you know technical team and the creatives uh, and, you know, I went and worked with Rick Birch. Uh, you know, Rick brought me on as his assistant. Uh, he was producing the New Year's Eve fireworks for Sydney. So I came and um, would travel up and down each day. And then uh, for, you know, the week leading up, mum and dad arranged for me to, to stay here in Sydney. And, you know, we were doing the fireworks preparation and then the, the, the event. That was really exciting, you know, and completely different. But, you know, it was all part of learning and observing. I think that's sort of certainly that was my best education. Uh, I, you know, to your earlier question about university, I think in the early years and um, of high school, you know, if you had have asked me what would I go and study, I always thought I'd go and do law. You know, that's I just felt like that was a proper thing to do, and you know, yeah. negotiate contracts. But then when I was working for Harry at the start of um, my year 12 year, Harry said, well, look, you know, Michael, what are you going to do next year? I said, well, you know, I'm thinking of going and doing law, but I really just want to work. And Harry said, well, I'd like to offer you a job here. You know, there's, you know, he sold it to me as the the best apprenticeship. Uh, And it was. And, you know, together with Harry, we looked at different university courses and colleges and at the time, his daughter, Lauren, who now runs the company, uh, and uh, had, had left uni, uh, and, but wanted to go and do you know, additional study. And so we ended up looking together and we stumbled across Maclay College. And I think, you know, we liked it, both Lauren and I, because it was only you know, part-time, so we could still work. Yeah. And we both just wanted to work. And so I did an advanced diploma in business management. And, you know, that was interesting, but I did love it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't as rigorous as what I hoped it would be. Uh, but in hindsight, that's okay because it gave me some foundations and, you know, got a certificate. I don't know where that is anymore. But really, my, my, ex, my learning, my education was that time with Harry and then on indeed the afterwards on the job with, you know, working with great producers and great mentors. And, and those, those producers which existed in previous generations, Harry, Frosty, John Robertson, um, Cameron, you know, with going internationally, they all started as stage managers and learning on the job and observing and Absolutely. doing exactly what you been doing. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's... Uh, I think no, you know, that study is really valuable. And, you know, more so as, you know, um, these industries, you know, change and, and evolve. But to, to work in theatre particularly, I think it's, you know, part of it is innate. You have, it's that gut instinct. It's the passion. But it's, it's learning. And it's learning from the best. 
Um, and you know, I'm fortunate to have had that experience. And, you know, forever grateful to to the Harrys and the Ricks and and James Thane, who you know, you know, I feel like that was a profession. <laughs> that was my uh, university degree, being paid to you know intimately observe what a producer does. And I learned a lot because I used to make sure I read every contract, read every budget, be it everything I could to sort of immerse myself in that world and go, okay, what do you do and how are these decisions made? What a faculty of teachers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> so when does the move to Disney come about? After, so, after Harry? Yeah, so the move uh, to Disney came about after Harry. So I'd been working for Harry for three years and, you know, I started, you know, my first year I was the jack of all trades. So I'd babysit Alan Jones's car. I would file the press clippings. I would drive Harry to the optometrist. I would do everything. And, you know, I didn't care. I was working and loving it. Um, and then over the time, you know, given greater responsibility and working with the different agents. And then you started doing little projects. And then by my third year for Harry, you know, I had my own little stable of clients that I was looking after. and convinced Harry to let us go after the Big Brother. It was the first series of Big Brother and I said to Harry, you know, we should be managing these people. Um, and, you know, ended up signing Sarah Marie Fideli who was, you know, famous for the bum dance and we launched a book and a CD and all of this. But, and that was fun and I loved the, you know, that taught me negotiating and the art of deal making. But I still want to be, I want to be a producer and Harry wasn't producing anything then. Um, we had sort of, we had just started, we were ramping up to produce uh, the in 2000 and uh, the year 2000, I think it was, um, Hair, which Harry was going to do as an arena musical, but we'd sort of cast it, we'd launched it and then, you know, box office sales hadn't taken off and, you know, it was put to bed. So James Thane, who was working for us uh, um, at Harry's as Harry's managing director and obviously, you know, distinguished producer having worked for Andrew Lloyd Webber and set up uh, Cameron's company here in Australia. He was headhunted to set up Disney in Australia. And so uh, when I found out that James had actually left Harry's to, to go to Disney, I was like, hands up. Um, and so thankfully, you know, James, you know, hired me and, you know, my job was to be his assistant, you know, manage the diary, the phone calls and, you know, what I just made it my mission to try and do as much as I can. And, you know, thankfully over time was able to prove myself and, you know, move on from being the assistant to production coordinator, to production administrator. I then moved down to Melbourne and oversaw the transfer of the production uh, to Melbourne. And then, you know, the the big sort of um, change for me was getting a call and saying, Michael, we need to take The Lion King to China. Have you ever been to China? I was like, no. And 12 months later, we're, you know, chartering three 747s and taking the entire company over to Shanghai to do a 12-week season of The Lion King there. And, you know, that was great because I was doing everything on, on that, you know, from the deal with the... Um, and trailblazing, tra- tra- because there's yeah. lots of dealing with the Asian market. And it was a huge adventure. and Developing partnerships. Yeah, and it was wonderful. And, you know, we were working, you know, obviously, um, you know, for, for the team I was leading at the time here at Disney and the show but then I was working closely with the team at Disney in New York who were managing the relationship and then the the Disney staff on the ground in China so you know I was getting a lesson in producing internationally you know foreign affairs you know commercial negotiations that was amazing and we got the show up and running and on the back of that Tom Schumacher who's the uh 
long-serving and uh, amazing president and producer of Disney Theatrical Group. We were at lunch one day. He said, Michael, you know, well done. You haven't mucked this up. You got it up and running. So thank you. And he said, you know, have you ever thought about moving to New York? I was like, I would love to, you know, the one city in the world I'd love to live in would be New York City. And he said, well, you know, we were wondering if you wanted to make the move over and come and work with uh, Ron Collin, who ran the international business and work on all of our international shows. And I don't think I could even let him finish the sentence before it was like an unequivocal yes. Uh, And so a couple of months later, we're packing the bags and moving to New York. So I imagine that's about 10 years between the uh, Kayama Christmas Carols by Candlelight. Yeah. To Disney. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's true. I haven't thought of it that way. So Carol started in 95. I joined Disney in 2002. We opened The Lion King in Shanghai in 2006. And at the end of 2006, I made the move to New York. It's an extraordinary decade. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I loved every minute. And just the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Many producers are described as showmen. Mm -hmm. Everyone from P.T. Barnum to to Cameron McIntosh. Grow all great showmen. How do you define showmanship? Look, I think I would define showmanship as truly a belief and a passion in what you're what you're presenting what you're producing no i think that's it's you know it's leading the leading the charge motivating others you know enthusing others i think that's my job you know a lot of people ask you know well how do you decide what show you want to produce you know i was asked that a lot you know when we've you know the first show that we announced after Les Mis was Kiki Boots. Well, how did you decide you wanted to do Kiki Boots? I said, well, because I went to that theatre and I, you know, ran out of that theatre and had the best time. It was like, I want to be involved in it. You know, same for, for Beautiful and everything else that's followed. And I, you know, my view is if I am passionate and excited about something, then hopefully I can encourage others to be a part of it. You know, that team, that creative team, the theatre owners, the, the people who are selling your tickets. And then, you know, importantly, the audience to come um, and you know that's I think that's my job is so, to so there's that initial gut reaction hey I want to do this mm. but then I guess you have to start thinking about all of those different components from casting to you know yep. where can we do this and yep. all that sort of thing and then putting that equation together and yeah. seeing whether you can give it a tick yeah absolutely I love that I love that process you know we spent a bit of time with our team yesterday because there's a couple of projects that you know I want to pursue and there's always bumps in the road or challenges but you know what I like is go okay well there's that in the way how do we overcome that to still deliver the show because at the end of the day I want to be a part of that and bring this team together and cast it and and ultimately have an audience go and enjoy it you spoke about Tom Schumacher at Disney mm-hmm. but, but also uh, the big fella there is Michael Eisner yes tell me about that meeting with Michael Eisner yeah, well, an incredible man. So, you know, Michael had, he was the CEO and chairman of the Walt Disney Company, so oversaw the whole, the whole shebang. Uh, and Michael, he was CEO chairman when I first joined, and obviously there was no interaction. I was a little assistant down in Australia. And then he subsequently left the company and handed over the reins to Bob Iger. But when I was setting up Michael Castle Group and thinking about going out on my own, you know, I wanted to do it properly, so I spent a couple of months writing a business plan because I thought you know I want this to I don't want this just to be a you know a a one-time project you know I want to build a company that you know continues to grow that produces you know ultimately creates our own shows 
So I spent a bit of time thinking about it and writing it and strategy and blah, blah, blah. And I was on my way to go and meet with Cameron in London to sort of finalize things on Les Mis. And I was traveling via the US to go and see the touring production of Les Mis. Uh, and I had a couple of days in New York to just go and see, you know, former colleagues and friends. And I, I love, as I said, I love writing to people. I love meeting people. And I thought, well, who is one person who knows a lot about running a business and particularly a live entertainment business and, you know, somebody with an interest in theatre? And I thought, well, Michael Eisner fits that bill. He's run the most successful entertainment company in the world. And, you know, he also has a passion for, the, for theatre. It was his, at his initiative that they went and, uh, you know, purchased the new Amsterdam Theatre and developed that. It was his idea and encouragement of Tom and Peter Schneider to develop The Lion King. So I thought, you know, he, he'd studied theatre at university. So I wrote to Michael, I said, you know, somebody who's run the most entertain, uh, most successful entertainment company in the world, I uh, want to go and hang out my shingle and start the Michael Castle Group to produce theatre. Uh, and we're going to be based in Australia and here's what we're going to do and I've written the business plan and I'm coming to New York and I'd like to you know chat with you about it anyway about 24 hours later I get a reply and I I, I, I'd handwritten you know typed a letter so I put it in the um, post but I think literally within 24 hours of receiving the letter I think he'd done a quick reference check to make sure that you know I was legit Legit. (laughs) Uh, and I get an email from him saying I've received your letter I will be in New York would love to meet with you and so I went and spent the day with Michael at his apartment in New York and he was amazing we went through page by page you know and the the business plan was I want to say it was 80 pages you know I it was a brain dump for me of everything we were going to do and timing and rollout and staff and projects and creative development and the whole the whole shebang and we went through it all and it was really great because obviously he asked a lot of questions uh, but was highly encouraging of you know the plan and at the end of it you know he sort of wrapped up he said Michael you've got a great business plan here he said you know your challenge now is to go and implement it and he said you know my advice to you is don't get distracted here's your plan stick to it you know being a creative person you want to go do this that and the other don't he said number two keep it lean he said as somebody who's run you know a creative organization you'll want to surround yourself with lots of people and creatives and do it and he said my advice to you is always be doing too much with too few and i think you know certainly i think the rest of the team will tell you that's certainly the mantra here but you know, looking back at our past year in 2020, I've never been more grateful to be doing too much with too few because it meant we were able to really, you know, withstand the pandemic. You know, we had minimal layoffs, minimal stand downs, and you know, we've now got the team essentially back and at it. And you know, that was advice that at the time I didn't really know how it would impact. And you know, there you go. And then the third thing was he said, you know, Michael you'll get the business to a stage where you'll be approached about, you know, people wanting to invest in the company or expand it or buy it. And he said, you know, in those early years, say no, because, you know, if you stick to your plan, you're going to deliver and the opportunity to grow exponentially rather quickly will exist when you find the right partner. And again, you know, we've just gone at last year, you know, a process I started back in 2018 was, you know, we knew that with Michael Castle Group we could either stay on the the path we were on or look to go and really ramp up in terms of our development opportunities and sort of other theatrical interests 
but I needed a partner to do that because you know there's only you know so much we can do with the shows we were producing here in Australia, and went and secured a great partner in Silver Lake who have now you know kind of supported us in expanding our interests and you know that's really exciting yeah. so it was really great and you know he's somebody now that I keep in touch with I you know chat to him every now and again we exchange a lot of emails and you know he's just been a great another great mentor so you had all these Obi-Wan Kenobis and, and it sounds like he was your Yoda yeah exactly <laughs> so work happening internationally and nationally it must be a 24-7 job <laughs> do you ever find time or do you have the opportunity just to sort of put work behind you for an hour or two? Yeah, I try to. I, look, I have because family time would be pretty. Important. Family time is pretty important, and look, I think it's interesting. The first few years, I feel like work was all-consuming, and that's okay because I was building a business and we were lean and trying to find our way and set a, you know, set a culture. And I wanted to be really, you know, hands-on and in the nitty-gritty, but. You know, also the realization that as you grow, you need a great team of people around you and you can't be doing everything. So, you know, the biggest challenge is because we have lots of activity and lots of international interests, you know, your days are long because you've got, you know, you want to be at the theater at night when theater is running. You've got early morning calls with New York and LA. You've got evening calls. My son, it was interesting, I was saying to my colleague today, my son said to me this morning, he said, Dad, why do you have to do lots of calls at night time? I said, well, because you're dealing with people who are in London and, you know, they're not awake when we're at work. But, you know, I am very conscious of giving myself some time off and, you know, we try and preserve our weekends the best we can when we're not in rehearsals or doing events. Um, But what I love is that my family are so engaged with the business. My children know that I love what I do. And, you know, they're, I think, that they'll end up running doing whatever they want but they're quite welcome to come and run things here you know Everly has a great eye and great detail and Vaughan uh, who's just turned six last week who was born the day of our opening of Les Mis in Perth so you know he was a theatrical baby from day one you know he wants to be a singer or a comedian an explorer or a babysitter so you know he's there's you know lots of opportunities there but you know they love it and they know I love it and that's really important he should be an actor. I think he and might he be, be an actor. Be, Look out. Now, you strike me as being very respectful and cheery and calm. Do you ever get frazzled? Do you ever lose it? No, no. I don't think so. No. no, I think, no, that's just not my style. Um, I think I certainly, I, you know, there's pressure and, and, you know, there's moments. But, you know, I like... I like being calm. I think that's an important part of leadership. I think when you have other people who are investing... And, and supporting you, you know, that is not the sort of the, the message you want to be sending or the behavior. Um, and, you know, I, 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 you know, I tend not to let things frazzle me. I worry about things, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, my job is to manage that. And, you know, I think there's nothing that can't be sorted, right? You know, I have a lot of headaches and, uh, you know, those moments of, oh, goodness, how are we going to deal with this? But with, you know, with time to think, and with great import to those around you, there's always a solution, right? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we're producing great theatre, and you know, there's nothing that can't be overcome. I think. Um, and to and to produce great theatre, you need 
a happy company, I think. You need a, a, um, you know, your cast, your backstage crew, your musicians that are all content to deliver this show, this product to an audience and yeah. they walk away happy. How do you ensure that, the, that your companies are happy and content in the workplace? Well, we talk about this a lot and this is, this is sort of the most important uh, piece of it for me is that, you know, we don't have successful shows. We don't have shows if our companies are not happy because, you know, I believe that if the company's happy, that resonates on stage, that translates to an audience, the audience has a great time. You know, you can have the biggest hit, but if that company's not feeling it and loving it and feeling supported, you know, the audience is going to feel that. I think it's, um, I think it has a tremendous impact. So, you know, for us, we talk about a lot, the most fundamental kind of, um, objective for us as a company is relationships it's the relationships that we have with the creative teams that we serve you know whether it's a Lin-Manuel Miranda or a Jeffrey Seller or a Jerry Mitchell or Cindy Lauper it's the relationships that we have with our cast crew musicians and people working on the shows and to that end it's you know being engaged it's being transparent it's being supportive it's being amongst it and I think you know, wanting to provide the right atmosphere, the right support, the right nurturing for those people, whether they be on stage or behind the scenes, to do the very best that they can. You know, we have, it's our relationships, thirdly, with our audiences. You know, when we say we're going to deliver this show, what does that experience mean? What does that relationship and that experience look like from the time you buy your ticket through, you know, a ticket tech or a ticket master to the time when you arrive at the theatre? No, I think that, that, that core of relationships and how we are respectful of each person and each stakeholder in the process is really key. And I think that is sort of, you know, the, at the heart of, of the culture we've created. And I like to think, and I, I, I think it's the case, that the cast and the crew and those people who are working our shows eight times a week know that this isn't, yes, this is work, but the relationship and the connection that we have between producer and those on stage and in the theatre is much more than that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you are, I want everybody to feel like they're part of our family. And I think, you know, we do have that, you know. Everybody feels like we are accessible and that we're doing something great together and we just happen to get paid for it. And we're really lucky for that. Yeah. It's important to do uh, something that you love, isn't it? it oh, I think so. Going to work very easy. Um, Australian um, companies don't tend to produce Australian cast albums anymore. You know, we used to see them a lot in the, the, the 70s and 80s, etc. Collectors' items now, many of them. Uh, why are producers not um, producing those cast albums, cast recording? People won't buy them, or look, I, I think look, personally, I'd love to be able to do it because I'd love to be able to, you know, sort of have that memorialize all yeah, of these I mean, great casts that, cast that were oh. I mean, sounded fantastic. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It would be great to, to preserve. Look, I think it's twofold. I think one is that there's a, you know, it, there's a substantial investment given the potential return. Yeah. I think for the originating producers and creative teams, there is so much time um, and investment that is contributed to the original, you know, international Broadway West End cast recording that to warrant a further investment and then have a local cast recording which isn't going to sell as many units as we'd all like Mm. uh, then dilute the original recording Um, and I think because of the nature of a lot of these shows now which are so global and everything is so accessible it's it's about having the definitive Um, I would love for us to be doing that for local but I think you know it's probably few and far between 
that's why we need to go and originate our own shows and, and get in first and, and do our own before you know you roll it out to the rest of the world. I think that's probably the best approach for us. Is that a new business plan to originate a, 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 a new work? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, it was part of the initial business plan uh, when I started, and we started making some inroads there. We started focusing on it uh, properly in 2019. Uh, and we've gone and acquired some rights. We've got some projects that are in the process of, of being developed. In fact, we're going to have our first reading of a show that uh, the first draft of a script gets turned in uh, at the end of March, and we will have a reading in the first couple of weeks of April with uh, some actors here in, in Sydney. Uh, with the writing team and our development team. And is that an Australian work? Or? It's an Australian work yeah. uh, with a, an incredible Australian writer. Uh, we've got uh, an incredible team who are now just 100% focused on our development slate. Uh, it's headed by a great lady who's just joined us this week, uh, a lady called Jane Abramson, and she's uh, our first person on the ground in New York City. Uh, she used to be uh, Director of Creative Development for Disney, and uh, I've known Jane, as is uh, Todd Lacey here, our Head of Production, and James Hayne for a long time, and uh, we've convinced Jane to come and join the troupe, so uh, she's set up shop there for us, which is really great, and then we have uh, the incredible Mike McLeish, who uh, is currently living in Melbourne, but makes a move to Sydney in March, and so uh, he's our Director of Creative Development, so Jane and Mike's job is 24-7 focus on nurturing these shows. And so, you know, what's exciting is we're reading lots of scripts, we're taking lots of meetings, not just you know, here in Australia, but internationally. And we, you know, again, it comes down to telling a great story, mm. but ultimately something that we're passionate about. So mm. hopefully that passion aligns with audience interest and great uh, creative concepts. But, um, you know, I think we all work in theatre because you want to be part of the creative process. And what better way than to start with a blank piece of paper and say, okay, what can we create? And our job is to shepherd that process and find the best people and the best ideas. And, you know, I think we're all very excited on the journey. And for us, that's been one of the highlights of uh, last year because we didn't have any shows running. We actually were able to invest a lot of our time in pushing those projects forward. And, and that was a great yeah. opportunity. Turn it into a positive. Yeah. And you've started uh, investing in new Broadway works with Pretty Woman. We have. We've taken a few investments. Uh, we invest in Pretty Woman, which um, is now playing or was playing on the West End and in Hamburg. Uh, the Share Show. Uh, we've uh, the Prince of Egypt, the DreamWorks production, which had just opened on the West End and which will return when things settle over in London. And uh, and a number of other projects that we're just looking at. And you know, partly you know that's about finding shows that we're just excited by, finding shows where we are developing relationships with, you know, the directors or the choreographers or wanting to nurture, you know, those relationships with the creative team with a view that down the track there might be other new development works that we might be able to partner with them on or producers or indeed finding shows that we'd one day like to either put on tour internationally or indeed bring to Australia. It must be a thrill um, hosting the original creatives of premier productions. You know, with Jerry Mitchell was here with Kinky Boots and Jack Thorne and John Tiffany with, with Harry Potter. Will we see Lin-Manuel Miranda for Hamilton? Look, that's my dream. I think we, my being optimistic, we will one day see Lin-Manuel Miranda in Australia. When, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I think my aim is that, like all Australian companies, the... Uh, he, 
the email will be full of acclaim. The Twitter will be pinging with all of these great reports. And he's just going to have to come down here and hopefully uh, check it out himself. Yeah. Do you ever get starstruck? I, th- I think I get... I like meeting some of these people? I don't know. I think I, I get starstruck in, I, not as sort of a... Not as a groupie, I suppose, but yeah, I, I'm in I'm in awe of all of these people who create and do great things. You know, I think you know whether you're a you know Uber producer or book writer or director or performer. You know, I'm just in awe of anybody who has such talent. So yeah, I do. You know. So Harry Potter, I mean, that was a huge coup. I mean, uh, were we the second production in the world? We were the third production. So we were Broadway, Broadway just beat us to it. Uh, it, they opened in April of 18 and then we opened in February of uh, 19 because you know, from the uh, uh, the novice here watching it would be a license to print money I would imagine so how do you secure the rights to put it on Australia because I'm sure there was a lot of competition well I went like all these shows we had just opened Les Mis at the Dubai Opera House and uh, I flew over to London to just go and see shows and obviously Harry Potter had just opened and you know there's great hype and excitement and incredible reviews so I wanted to go and see it for myself went and saw the show and again like Hamilton or like Kinky Boots walked out of that theatre I mean between part one and part two I was there with my colleague Ali and we just could not stop talking about the show how did they do this wow I can't believe they did that wow I didn't expect this and we saw part two and then I went back to the hotel and just google stalked everybody involved you know I want to know everything about every member of that creative team you know looking up you know I had met Sonia Friedman previously but you know I was start, you know went down that rabbit hole of everything she'd ever produced and so Colin Callender who's the who's the producer of it with her and sent a note to Sonia and said, Sonia, I've seen it. I'm in London. Can I come and meet with you? And so I went and met with Sonia. And, you know, it, this was, you know, that only just really opened the show. <laughs> Sonia said, look, we've just opened the show. We need to let things settle. Australia's probably a long way off. Thank you. I've met with, you know, some others and I'm sure I'll meet with others. And we don't know what we're doing yet. I was like, great. I said, you know, if you do change your mind, please. I said, I just think the show is amazing and just want to be involved. Uh, Fast forward and they uh, had, you know, obviously started thinking about their plans and made a trip out to Australia to sort of, you know, meet lots of people and look at theatres and just sort of do a bit of a preliminary evaluation of things uh, and so met the team here and then I get a call saying Sonia would like to meet with you can you get on a plane I was like yes and I think I, I think that was the shortest notice I've ever had to do an international trip I think it was three days later and I was on the I was like nothing's getting in the way I'm over there and so I went and spent time with Sonia saw the show several times and met with all of the team and you know just said to them why I wanted to do it and you know my reasoning is as is with everything I really love it I want to be a part of it we're going to take good care of it and I think we've got an exceptional team to nurture your show and you know thankfully they agreed to to uh bring us on board and so that was you know it was an exceptional process to go to you know certainly the largest show in terms of complexity we've ever pulled together at the same time we're renovating a theater and closing down the princess for six months to 
to do all of the work inside the theatre to both accommodate the production and provide that audience experience and then put it into rehearsals and obviously the the most extensive rehearsal process I think any of us will ever be through or have gone through to date and then to you know to open the show and to have this incredible cast of actors on that stage and and to be the third show in the world and to have the acknowledgement of that creative team and the producers about just what a wonderful experience it's been you know what it they always are you know when you when you get the right group of people together with you know with the right motivations i think you know that that experience that the original creative team take away it's like creating the show for the first time and i think you know that was a really special experience for john tiffany and stephen hoggart who are you know all on the ground for that period of time you know giving life to the show do they uh, continue to modify and finesse the show for its, its new home and um, just see aspects of it that they might improve on? Look, I think yes, and I think, you know, what is so fortunate, I said this to our team, on the, uh, the company, on the first day of rehearsals. You know, to, to be a part of a rehearsal process so early on in the life of the show's rollout. You know, to be the third production, it's not like they've been rolling this out forever and you know, we're showing number nine or ten, you know, by which time you sort of, you really know what you're dealing yeah, with. Yeah. You know, it was still sort of new. So for the original creative team who have license to finesse and then to only be the third production where the creative team are learning and then they're collaborating with, you know, such a talented group of actors, you know, there are nips and tucks and nuances that they have license to implement. And that's really special. And I think that is also special for our actors because they have ownership yes, uh, yes and i think that's incredibly important and you know we're about to see that on hamilton because again this you know this production has had you know ginormous success you know broadway the west end and uh, so many touring companies in the u.s but this is the first international production outside of the u.s and uk and you know with that brings a great deal of opportunity and to have Thomas Kale and Andy Blankenbuehler and Alex Lacamoire, who are you know the original creative team with with Lin Manuel Miranda. You know, I've never been involved. I think this is. I'm trying to think if I have, but I've never been involved in a casting process where you've got the original book writer, lyricist, composer, let alone principal artist involved in the audition process. Yeah. You know, we spent months going back and forth with Lynn on Zoom, reviewing tapes. And, you know, Lynn, along with Tommy and the rest of the team, are choosing who will give life to these roles in Australia. Now, that's incredibly important because you're not just casting to a type or you're able to, you know, reimagine what these roles look like given the talent that you have here. And I think that's incredibly special for us here in Australia. And I'm really keen to see once we start rehearsals, what that means once we get this, the show on stage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the multiculturality, is that a word? Of uh, the, the cast, which is unique to the country that's going to be performed in and, um, and fabricating those characters around them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what was wonderful, and we talked a lot about, you know, we started talking about bringing Hamilton to Australia back in 2015, so not long after the show. Again, you know, when I saw the show and <laughs> found my way to Jeffrey Seller and said, we have to do this. So it's been a long time coming, but what, what 
Jeffrey supported from from the very beginning, and certainly Lin Manuel Miranda and the and the rest of the creative team invested in was we have to cast this unique to Australia. So this isn't this isn't a, it will be the same production of Hamilton on Broadway or the West End, but in terms of the casting choices and the diversity, this needs to look like Australia and 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 be unique to our country and i think that's what we've what we've delivered certainly in our casting choices and i i think that's going to resonate once we we get it on stage now am i right in assuming that it's probably the the youngest cast to present the show look i think certainly we skew younger i don't know if that's absolute fact uh but i think on the whole it feels it certainly feels that way i i can't say that for certain i think compared to broadway and the west end productions which i'm very familiar with yes it is and possibly sydney will be the only place in the world where you'll be able to see Hamilton for a period of time i mean look unless things change dramatically um over the next two months Yes, and look, I, I think that will probably be the case because we've got the creative team here ready to get the show up and running. So, um, yeah, Sydney, all eyes will be on Sydney for, for the next little while for Hamilton. Um, and I saw a, a, a news item the other night, you know, just talking about building Hamilton. And, mm-hmm. and it's like extraordinary statistics like this. About 35 hours just spent on one pair of boots. Yeah. And it's... you've got hundreds of pair of boots <laughs> in the show. Yeah. You know, all these bespoke uh, costume pieces which are being built. 12 months already building costumes. Yeah, I mean, we started this process in April last year. So just as everything was, you know, turning off, we were meant to be, you know, turning up the heat on our costume build and, and getting that underway. And, you know, the the way that this team have overcome the complexities and, and challenges of, of what COVID and the pandemics presented is exceptional. I mean, I... I, I, my jaw dropped to the ground. I was walking through the office one day, uh, middle of last year, and uh, Annalise Crow, who's our associate producer, and Yossi Torbener, uh were printing something. I said, well, what are you printing? It had Hamilton all over it. And they said, oh, these are the uh, do-it-yourself measurement uh, sheets. I was like, what? And, you know, normally, as you know, you, you know, have the measurements several times and fittings and everybody comes to the workshop. But obviously, everybody's stuck at home, you know, allowed out in you know, certain places, and we had to overcome that. So we sent everybody a, a tape and a ruler and this chart, and the initial measurements, everybody did themselves with an instruction from uh, Jude Loxley, who's our costume supervisor here in Australia, on what to do. But, you know, all of these, you know, they were just clever, simple, innovative, but innovative solutions to allow us to you know keep the production on track and you know thankfully we've now gone through fittings in person and those measurements worked out and you know maybe with a few nips and tucks but you know it's in great shape and it's allowed us to keep the you know the production process moving forward so what do you think it is about hamilton that's made it such an in-demand experience i mean across all generations i mean all of the kids know that they're singing the songs um Adults I know who never go to the theatre, it's like, we have to see Hamilton. Mm. What's the the power behind the show that's that's drawing everybody? Look, it's just a unique theatrical experience. You know, at its heart is this incredible story. You know, it's it's a story essentially of, you know, an orphan from the Caribbean who, you know, moves to the US with great, you know, determination and grit and passion goes and changes not only his life's trajectory but that of his adopted country Mm. 
and you know like all good I get asked a lot why do you you know Hamilton's just an American musical why do you think it will work here and you know my response which I you know believe is absolutely true is you know, nobody knew, you know, very few people knew of Victor Hugo's Les Mis Absolutely. and the French Revolution. Yeah. But it's at its heart is this incredible story which connects with audiences and incredible music and lyrics. And, you know, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius. Yeah. To have read Ron, Ron Chanel's, you know, Hamilton on holidays and come up with the concept that this can translate to stage. But... That's why it's so clever, because it absolutely worked. And then combining it with this incredible score, which you know blends so many different genres. And it's so contemporary. It's unlike any other musical, certainly, I've ever heard. Yeah. And for me, the, the, the moment where I thought, oh, wow, this is really broad, was my brother, Matthew, uh, who you know, has supported me and come to all of my musicals and unfortunately suffered when I was a kid and you know, making him dress up and perform in the shows. So I think you know, I probably turned him off you know, live entertainment forever. But you know, he called me one day, he said, oh, Michael, I've just been listening to the Hamilton mixtape. You've got to listen to it, it's so great. And I thought, wow, okay. You know, Matthew's not searching for cast recordings no. of the next musical, but this music has appealed to him because it is so familiar. And I think that's what I, I'm just gobsmacked at how many kids are falling in love with the show. You know, young kids, and you know, I see it in my own home, you know, Everly and Vaughan are singing these songs, rapping these songs. But it's, there's something about the musicality of this show which is very familiar, yet unique. Um, and, you know, it's that combination of, of all of this put together and then all of the production elements, obviously, in the theatre experience that I think audiences are blown away. And, you know, just as I was. I went to that show uh, not long after it opened on Broadway. And, you know, I was a bit sceptical because I was reading all of these amazing reviews and, you know, there was so much buzz. And I'd just been to London before going on to New York. And, you know, I'd been with a lot of people who I respect and everybody, you know, there was just not enough superlatives mm. to describe this show. Mm. And I just thought, I, I've never heard of this before. How How can everybody be, you know, just waxing lyrical? So I was a little bit, you know, cross my arms, okay, this better be amazing. And, but like everybody, you know, out of that theatre, goosebumps and just thought, wow, I've never had an experience like this. You know, it is truly special and truly unique. Um, And I think that's what resonates. That's, you know, that's why it's become this phenomenon. Yeah. Not just the score, choreography, design. Look, the choreography, yeah, all of the elements, you know, we've, the choreography, you know, it's wonderful, you know, and fortunate to be able to go and see the show several times. And every time you see it, just that the layers of storytelling and, you know, the first time I saw it, I think I took it all in and loved it. But the second time and the third time and the fourth time, just to see that storytelling that Andy's created with that choreography, you know, that ensemble works so hard. And, you know, <laughs> we know it very well now because we're about to put our ensemble through their paces. Yeah. But just the way that that supports the storytelling, yeah. you know, Paul's costumes, that lighting, which I just think is one of the most glorious lighting designs oh, yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, it all, you know, it's just when the stars align and, and they've aligned in a big way with this show. Have you developed an opening night ritual yet? Are you superstitious? I'm not superstitious. No, I'm not superstitious. No. no, I just, you know, I a few butterflies in the lead up to opening night. But by then, you know, it's out of my 
you know, I, yeah. can't, I can't do anything. It's, you know, by that stage, we've, we've handed the show over. You know, our job is to, is to provide the environment and the support and the right people. But, you know, what gives these shows life is, you know, that cast, crew and, and the creative team that, you know, nurture it and, and create it. So by the time it rolls around to opening night, I'm just, you know, eager to take my seat like the rest of the audience and let it wash over me. Do you read reviews? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. Note yeah. What no, I think, is. Yeah, no, I think it's important to have a bit of a finger on the pulse and see what people are saying. And, you know, I read the reviews. I do a bit of a scroll of, of social media and see what the buzz is. And I think that's important, you know, to, to have your finger on the pulse and, and what the vibe is, what the, what the, the word is. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, I think you just have to stick with it and, and do what's right by the show and, and deliver that for audiences night in, night out. Hamilton opens next week at the Lyric Theatre in Sydney. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is back at the Printers Theatre in Melbourne. Both are exceptional pieces of theatre and they are in Australia, presented by my guest today, Michael Castle. Harry Potter is well established at the magnificent Printers Theatre in Spring Street, so it will mean a journey to marvellous Melbourne to see the show. And Hamilton is about to commence performances and no doubt will be resident at the Lyric Theatre for some time to come. Aren't we lucky and smart and privileged to be living where we do? Being able to attend the theatre is a treat denied to many citizens of the world at present. Bizarre to think that Australia is the only place in the globe where you can see these shows at present. So, go and see a show. The big ones like those mentioned today, or the fantastic fringe and independent theatre that is also available around the country. Lucky indeed. My thanks to Michael for his enthusiastic participation and to the folk at the Michael Castle Group for their assistance in recording this conversation today. Thanks for tuning in. It's good to be back. You know who I am. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time. It's time to take a shot. Rise up.